right, well, we have now reached the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the two most significant events in all of history. If you were with us uh, three weeks ago, we were in chapter 14, and we saw Judas give Jesus a kiss on the cheek, and that was a signal of betrayal, a signal to the soldiers of which man under the dark Uh, the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, which man to arrest? And so they arrested Jesus, right? And you remember, they took him first to Annas' house. That's the former high priest. And then they took him to Caiaphas' residence. That's the current high priest. And in in, in both places, in Annas' residence and Caiaphas' residence, Jesus was grossly mistreated, especially at Caiaphas' palace. And you remember that night they condemned him to death and after that they blindfolded the Lord and they spit on him and they hit him over and over with the palms of their hands and they said, prophesy Christ who just hit you. Prophesy over and over. And so they grossly mistreated the Lord because they were so angry with Jesus. But you need to know that it was an anger that was not a righteous anger, it was an anger that was born out of envy and an anger that was born out of pride. These guys were jealous of Jesus. You know why? Because who had been getting all the attention for the last three years? Jesus, and not them. And so when they saw the crowds going towards Jesus, they became uh, green with envy and, and jealousy and they ended up doing things that were absolutely horrible. And not only that, it was an anger that was born out of pride. Jesus wounded their fragile little ego. You know why? Because he called them out for their sin. He called them out for their legalism. He called them out for their empty religion. And and they got upset. Before we move on, I just want to say that the proverb says to guard your hearts, for out of it come the issues of life. Ladies and gentlemen, don't allow your heart to harbor Envy and jealousy. If there's someone that gets a promotion that you don't get or a raise you don't get, somebody who has more gifts than you have, somebody who has more talents than you have, someone that's better looking than you have, be careful. Don't allow envy and don't allow pride into your heart because if you do, if you allow and harbor that, that, that envy, what's gonna happen is you're gonna say something or you're gonna do something you're gonna regret like the Jewish religious leaders. And, and pride Hey, when someone in love calls you out, someone corrects you, don't get all peacock feathers waving in the wind and all offensive and the, you know, the wall up and, and, and you know, don't allow your ego to be wounded. Hey, if they love you and they're speaking into your life to help you, listen with dumbo ears. Be grateful for correction. How many of you believe we all need to be corrected, right? Okay, so don't have that, that pride because if you harbor pride in your heart, you're gonna say something, you're gonna do something that you regret. And so they're envious, they're prideful, they're angry, they're beating on the Lord, but the suffering's just starting. And now we look at verse one of chapter 15. So if you're looking at verse one right now, say amen. I always ask you because I wanna make sure Uh, that we're going through the Bible together, okay? And so, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. 
If you're brand new today, the whole council is the Sanhedrin. They are the highest authority in Israel. And what does the highest authority in Israel do? It says they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to who? Pilate, okay, so it's early in the morning on the day that's famously become known as Good Friday. And so the night before, the Sanhedrin had already condemned Jesus to death, but there's a problem. They violated their own law. The law they violated was that the, the, Jew, the Jewish high court was not allowed to try capital cases at night. And so because of that, they knew that they messed that up. They decide that we're gonna give lip service to our own law. We're gonna reassemble early in the morning and we're gonna make it official. Jesus condemnation. And so why in the world did they condemn Jesus, an innocent man, to death? Well, we already know envy and pride, but putting that aside, they believed that Jesus had committed blasphemy. And you remember the night before, we looked at this three weeks ago, Caiaphas, the high priest, looked at Jesus and said straight out, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And look at how Jesus responded. He said, go ahead and shout out the first two words. I am. No if and buts about that, right? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Do you guys remember how Caiaphas, the high priest, responded to that response? Blasphemy, and he rips his garment. And so they were mad. They were upset. They would have loved to have stoned Jesus right there because blasphemy back in those days in, in Israel was punishable by death. And they would have loved, and by the way, the Jewish way of administering capital punishment was stoning in biblical days. They would have loved to go out and pick up some rocks and stone them right there for blasphemy. But there was a problem. You see, about 25 years prior to this, we're right around 80, 32, 33 right now, 25 years prior to this, right around AD 7, the Roman Empire removed from Israel their ability to administer capital punishment. And so if Jesus was gonna receive the death penalty, it would have to be decided not by the Jews, but by the Romans. And that's why we read at the end of verse one that they delivered Jesus over to who? Pilate. Let me just give you a quick side note I think is fascinating. Once again, if the Romans had not uh, removed Israel's right to administer capital punishment, you tell me, how would Jesus have been executed? What? Stoning, right? But did you know that he had to be crucified? Because in the Old Testament, in a book called Zechariah, which was written 500 years BC, Zechariah the prophet was prophesying about the coming day of the Lord, about the end times. We know it as the second coming. And this is what he says in Zechariah 12:10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So, listen to this, when they look on me on whom they have Pierced. Everybody say pierced. That's not stoning. What is that? That's crucifixion. 500 years prophesied before Christ. 
When they, Israel, looks on me, Jesus, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so what you, you and I need to know is that God's word is true. God is in control of all things. He sees the future. He knows exactly what's gonna happen. And that's why in AD 7, the Romans removed Israel's right to administer capital punishment because the Messiah would have to be, not stoned, crucified. Listen, this book, it's unlike any other book in the world. And so let's talk about Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was appointed in AD 26, the governor of Judea, he was appointed that position by the Roman emperor Tiberius. And Pilate ruled over Judea with an iron fist for 10 years, from AD 26 to AD 36. His primary residence, which he loved, was in Caesarea. If you look at a modern map of Israel, you find Tel Aviv right there on the Mediterranean Sea. You go up, I think about 35 miles, and you come to the beautiful coastal city of Caesarea. That's where Pilate's primary headquarters were. His secondary quarters was over in Jerusalem in what's known in the Greek as the Praetorium. It was the, uh, the station of the soldiers uh, of the Roman Empire right next to the temple. Pilate hated going to Jerusalem. He loved being in Caesarea. He much rather on this Passover week that we're in right now in Mark 15, Pilate would have much rather been in Caesarea, you know, bathing out in the sun or whatever they did 2000 years ago. I Googled uh, this earlier this week, Passover, April 7th, 2018. What was the temperature in Tel Aviv? It was 80 degrees, okay? And so he much would have rather been on the beach but he had to be over in Jerusalem. You know why he had to be in Jerusalem with his soldiers? It's Passover. Every Passover, Jerusalem swells to two or three times its size, filled with zealous, patriotic Jews. And the Roman Empire could not allow a rebellion, and so Pilate is where he does not want to be to keep peace among the crowds. Now, for those who doubt the reliability of the New Testament, for those who doubt whether all these stories are really true or not, you need to know that Pilate is not only mentioned in the scriptures, he's also mentioned in secular literature by the Jewish historian Josephus, by the Jewish philosopher Philo, and by the Roman senator Tacitus. And so Tacitus, who lived from AD 56 to AD 120, he wrote this in his annals. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to the Bible, this is not the Bible here. This is a Roman senator's notes from the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Check it out. Christus the founder of the name, Christians, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator or governor of Judea, during the reign of Tiberius, that's the annals of Tacitus, 15.44. And so anybody who thinks that Jesus is just a mythological figure who was made up by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you need to reckon with the fact that he's not only written about in the scriptures, he's also written about in this secular reference. By the way, when it says something in the Bible, I don't know about you, but it's enough for me. 
When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that Jesus lived and suffered and died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, I have no problem believing that. I believe this is God's word. But nonetheless, you know, there's some people who say, I don't really know if he's a historical figure or not. Well, check it out. He really is a historical figure, as was Pilate. Did you know in 1961, an Italian archeologist was excavating a certain site in Caesarea Maritima, same city, Caesarea by the sea. They were excavating a Roman amphitheater and they found this. It's called the Pilate Stone. It's a broken piece of limestone with a few lines still somewhat visible. It's written in Latin and it's difficult to read, but this is what it says. The first line says Tiberium. Okay, Tiberium was a temple that they named after Tiberius, the Roman emperor. The second line says Pilatus. In other words, Pontius Pilate. The third line says prefect of Judea or the governor of Judea. So here we have what's called a dedication stone where Pilate dedicates a temple in or around Caesarea to the Roman emperor Tiberius, the Italian archeologist found it as a stair step in a Roman amphitheater. It had been used as just a rock, but guess what? Archeologists date this back to the first century AD. Ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament's reliable, it's authentic, the stories are true, and even the rocks cry out to authenticate the word of God. And that's one of hundreds and hundreds of archeological evidences of the Bible. A copy of that is in Caesarea by the sea. If you go with us to Israel, we'll walk around the Mediterranean, we'll see the copy of that. But the original is in a museum over in Jerusalem. Pilate was a historical figure. He was a ruthless ruler. He ruled over the Jews and he didn't like the Jews. He's always dealing with their complaints. The current complaint on this Passover week was about a man named Jesus of Nazareth from the hills of Galilee. And Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin brought Jesus in before Pilate and they accused him of three things. They said, Pilate, this guy from Galilee, he has misled our nation. Number two, he has forbidden Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And number three, he claims he's the Messiah. Now guess what? That's two lies and one truth. Some people say two out of three ain't bad. Not when you're lying, all lies are bad. Okay, and so you, you tell me, yes or no, did Jesus mislead the nation of Israel? No. He was the best thing that ever happened to Israel. He came to save them, but they missed it. Number two, did, did Jesus forbid Jews to pay taxes to Caesar? No. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Number three, did Jesus claim to be the Messiah? I am. <laughs> yes. Okay, and so two lies, one truth. Well, they're lying out of their teeth. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. They're trying to get Pilate to condemn him to death because they didn't have the authority to do it themselves. Verse two. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Some of your translations say, it is as you say. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. You see, Pilate was used to prisoners cowering before him in fear, begging and pleading for their life, frantically defending themselves so that they would not be judged but set free. But Pilate got none of that from Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus was not afraid of Pilate or any other corrupt politician. Pilate may have thought he was in control, but guess what? The son of God was in control of this whole thing. And so Jesus did share a little bit. John records it in his gospel, but other than that, zip the lips. And Pilate was amazed that he's not begging for his life. And verse six says, now at the feast, the feast of Passover, he, Pilate, used to release for them, Israel, one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd, okay, I want you to try to, as I'm going through these verses, try to picture this in your mind, okay? And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of what? Envy, do you see that in verse 10? He, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? Right, you guys remember another gospel tells us his wife came to him, honey, I had a dream, don't, don't mess with this guy. He's like, why? What evil has he done? But they, the crowd, shouted all the more, crucify him. You know how ironic it is that the crowd demanded that a cold-hearted criminal be released and yet an innocent man be condemned to death. And how sad that it was the religious guys, the chief priests that were going around the crowd, stirring them up to call for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be condemned. You know what that tells me? It tells me two things. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, don't follow the crowd. It'll get you in trouble every time. The crowd is capable of the worst things imaginable. They crucified the Son of God. Don't follow the crowd. I look back at my life, I'm 52 years old, when I was in my 20s, I used to always try to fit in the crowd and be cool. And now I'm 52 and I think, who cares? <laughs> it's not because of spiritual growth in Christ, it's just I'm, I'm older now. I don't care what the crowd is doing. Don't follow the crowd, the crowd's worldly. Right, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's our three enemies as Christians. 
When you become a born again Christian, you're not supposed to be part of the crowd. You're, you're part of the church. The church is the called out ones, the ecclesia. We're different than the crowd. And then number two, this tells me not, not only don't follow the crowd, but don't follow religion. It's the religious guys that are stirring up the crowd to do this injustice. You know what religion will do? Religion will send you to hell. Religion is all about what man can do to reach God. This book, the new covenant, it's all about what God can do to reach man. It's called grace. See, it's not religion, it's relationship. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, you won't fit in with the crowd. So don't even try, who cares, right? Just live for the audience of one. Live for Jesus Christ. And now we go to verse 15. It's gonna get a little graphic here. And by the way, this is why we have a children's ministry so they can learn this stuff on their own level and not have nightmares. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And here's the three words, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Having scourged Jesus, those three little words are filled with the worst horror imaginable. I mean, a Roman scourging was beyond brutal. And it left its victims in a pool of blood and often dead. And so the whip that the Roman soldiers used during the scourging was called the flagellum. And so the flagellum had a number of leather straps that were fastened to a wooden handle. But the problem was at the end, I mean, if that's bad, en bad enough, a, a leather strap with lots of strands, what's was, was even worse is at the end of those straps were fastened pieces of metal. And so that made the beating 10 times worse. And so again, I know it's, it's hard, but you need, to, you need to think about this. You need to think about what he did for you and me. And so what did they do? They tied his, his hands to a post, exposing his bare back, and the Roman soldier went to town on Jesus' bare back with a flagellum, having scourged him. And as he thrashed the Lord over and over, after a while, the, 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 the metal on the tips of the leather straps punctured his skin, punctured the tissue, punctured the muscles, all the way down to the bone. And by the, by the time they were done, Jesus was a bloody mess. And you say, why? Why would the eternal son of God subject himself to such brutality? Here's why. He loves you. By his stripes, we are healed. Allow this message to impact you today. Listen, I know some of you have been saved for decades. I know you've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it, but you need to ask the Lord, let me hear this with fresh ears. Impact me with the greatest story ever told. It's his love. It wasn't ropes keeping him bound to that post. It was his love for me and you. It says now in verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, okay? This is the praetorium. And they called together the whole battalion. 
Okay, lots of soldiers stationed in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover to keep peace among the patriotic Jewish crowds. They gathered the whole battalion around Jesus and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Verse 18, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And so once they made it inside of the praetorium, they gathered the whole battalion. A Roman battalion is 600 soldiers. And so I want you to picture in your mind, here's a, all these soldiers surrounding Jesus like a pack of wolves. And because of his royal title, King of the Jews, they decided, hey, every king needs a royal robe. And so they found a purple robe, the color of royalty. They stripped him of his clothes and put on the purple robe. And then, hey, every king needs a crown. And they went out and fashioned a crown of thorns, rammed it on his head. Hey, every king needs a scepter. Somebody found a reed and put it in his hand. Can you see your savior? Standing purple robe, crown of thorns, reed in his hand. And the soldiers knelt down. Hail, king of the Jews. And they got up and spit right in his face over and over. Then they took the reed out of his hand and beat the crown of thorns deeper into his skull. You say, why? Why would the eternal son of God subject himself to such brutality? He loves you. He could have called more than 12 legions of angels to wipe those 600 soldiers out like fleas, but he loves you and he loves me. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, which reopened all the wounds in his back. He's still bleeding. And now we see in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so Jesus, because of the emotional anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, because of the sleepless night, because of the horrible Roman scourging, he's too weak to carry his cross. Remember, remember this, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% what? Man, his body's done. And so there's a big guy in the crowd, hey, you, come here! And the soldiers grab this guy, his name is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a town in Northern Africa, so no doubt this guy is a Jewish pilgrim from North Africa going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And he didn't know, can you imagine if you're in the crowd and all of a sudden they grab you and you're carrying the cross of Jesus. It's interesting, by the time Mark wrote this gospel, scholars believe between 50 and 60 AD that Mark knew their names, Simon and his two boys, Rufus and Alexander. What that tells me is that when you go from AD 32, 33, when Jesus was crucified to Mark 50 to 60, I'm sorry, AD 50 to 60, when Mark was written, that during that time span, it tells me that Simon and his family became Christians, became part of the Christian community, so Mark knows their names. In fact, when you go to Romans 16, 13, you find that Paul says, quote, greet Rufus, that's one of the 
names of the boy, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. And so if that is Rufus son of Simon, that means that the boy got saved and he went up to the church of Rome between AD 50 and 60 and was serving the Lord in that place. Look at verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And so the name of the place where they crucified Jesus in the Aramaic was Golgotha. In the Latin, it's Calvary Locus. I don't know if you ever thought about it deeply, but why is this church called Calvary? Well, we're named. Secondarily, we're a Calvary Chapel affiliate, but most important, this church is named after the place where Jesus bought our redemption. Golgotha, Calvary Locus, it means a place of a skull. And so the early church fathers, when you study their writings, some of them wrote that the reason that Jesus' place of execution was called the place of the skull was because the hill where he was crucified was in the shape of a skull. And that's where we have these early writings. If you go with us to Israel, sure enough, we'll go to a place called Gordon's Calvary. You can look it up later on the internet. But Gordon's Calvary, you look at the hill and it, it looks like a skull. And so lots of Christians, mostly Protestants and evangelicals, they believe that Jesus was crucified there in that area. We're, we're not sure. There's a debate in, in, in Christianity about the exact place where Jesus was crucified. I say that's not as important. Listen, the place is not as important as the fact that he died for us, okay? And so Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 12, says that Christ suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. That's what's important, is that he died and his blood is the only way to the Father. Amen? All right, look at verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This is before they nail him to the cross. They're trying to get him to drink a cup of something here. It's actually a narcotic. So they offer him a wine mixed with myrrh and he did not take it. You guys know why he didn't take it, right? He didn't want to have a fuzzy mind and numb feelings. He wanted to have a clear mind and feel completely the pain that he would endure for you and me. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them. That's important for later. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, what each soldier should take. And it was the third hour, that's 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And so that wooden placard above his cross said the king of the Jews, Luke tells us in three different languages so that everybody who walked by knew this is why this guy's being crucified. Don't mess with the Roman Empire and the Jews hated this. They told Pilate to take it down. He said, nope, it's staying up. Now let's focus in on the crucifixion for a moment. Again, it's hard to imagine, to, to, to think about it, but we need to so we understand what he did for us. Roman crucifixions like Roman scourgings, beyond brutal. Crucifixions were invented by the Persians. They were perfected by the Romans. It's, it's one thing to have spikes driven through your hands and feet. It's another thing to slowly suffocate 
And that's what crucifixions were designed to do, cause the victims to slowly suffocate. Because after you've been beaten and you're weak, you don't have a lot of strength. And so when you're on the cross, your body sags down. And when you're in this position, it's very hard to breathe. So in order to breathe, the victim of crucifixion would have to push himself up on his already damaged, bleeding, pierced feet just to get a breath. And so this is what's happening to Jesus at this time as he's hanging between heaven and earth for you and me. How did victims of crucifixion die? Some died of blood loss. And by the way, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Some died of blood loss. Some died of suffocation. Some died of dehydration. Some died of heart failure. Some died of predatory animals. Okay, so we, we see paintings and Jesus is like, I don't know, 10 feet off the ground or whatever, and that's not true. The Romans, they, they, they did these pretty quickly, and so the victims were two or three feet off the ground, and so after the Romans left, predatory animals would come and chew on the legs while these guys were still alive. And of course, thank God, we know that, didn't, that did not happen to the Lord because he was in charge of when he lived and when his body died. And so very interesting, as Jesus is trying to breathe, verse 24 says, the soldiers divided his garments among them and casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Did you know that fulfills Old Testament prophecy? Check it out, what David said in Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Look at this. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Somebody says, that's in the New Testament. No, that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Jewish scriptures. That was written 1,000 years BC. Do you see the detail, yes or no? Yes, what does that tell us? This is God's word, ladies and gentlemen. And so what amazing detail. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The word iniquity, if you're new to church, just means sin. So he was pierced and crushed for our sins. Upon him, was the chastisement, the discipline, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's written 700 BC. Again, that tells me that this is God's word and Jesus really is the Messiah. He fulfilled uh, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in detail. No other book like this. You say, have you ever read Nostradamus? Give me a break. Not even close. Generalities. You can make it say whatever you want. You can't make that say whatever you want. Look at verse 27. And with him, with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. It says these guys were robbers. I think it's interesting as I dug in this week, I found out that stealing was not a capital offense under Roman law. And so why are these guys being put to death? 
And so I dug some more and we don't know for sure. There's suggestions among scholars. Some believe that because these guys were incarcerated at the same time Barabbas was incarcerated, that they were somehow involved with Barabbas's zealot clan that committed murder and insurrection and that will um, get you in trouble and um, cause you to be put to death by the Roman Empire. And so some believe that because these guys were in prison the same time Barabbas was, Barabbas was released, they went to a cross that maybe they were involved in a, not just stealing, but insurrection. We don't know. What we do know for sure from Luke is that one of these guys who at the beginning was hurling insults at Jesus, at some point between nine and three, he had a change of heart. And the next thing you know, his friend over on the other side is hurling insults at Jesus and he basically says, stop. You and I, we deserve this punishment. He admitted he was a sinner. You can't get saved unless you know you're lost. We deserve this punishment. He's innocent. Lord, you hear that? He's confessing Jesus is Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You guys remember what Jesus said to him? Today, not your soul's gonna sleep for a thousand years to the resurrection. No, today, you will be with me in paradise. You say, he's a criminal. Yeah, but you know what this tells me? It's another passage of grace. You're, you may be here and you've done some horrible things like the criminal on the cross and you're ashamed. What you need to know is that in spite of what you've done, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. But listen, you gotta turn to him as the thief did in repentance and faith. He will forgive you no matter what you've done. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the, with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, right? That's what the world wants. See and believe, show me and then I'll believe. No, 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 no. Believe and you will see. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so if the scourging's not enough, if the spitting's not enough, if the spikes are not enough, these guys had to add insult to injury and they verbally abuse the Lord. So there's people, again, picture it, there's people walking down the road, they see Jesus and they begin to wag their heads, you know, and start hurling insults. And then Matthew tells us, if you're with me, say amen here, Matthew tells us that the chief priests, the religious guys said, and I quote, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. And they didn't even know they were fulfilling prophecy. Look at Psalm 22, thousand years before Christ. All those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him for he delights in him. And so they're wagging their heads, fulfillment of prophecy. They're saying these words, fulfillment of prophecy, in their own scrolls, in their own synagogue. 
back in their hometown. Absolutely amazing. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour, that's high noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice. This is Aramaic. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22.1. And some of the bystanders hearing said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Okay, now think about this. And, and if you haven't really been listening that much right now, you gotta listen. This is the gospel, right? 12 to three, it's supposed to be sunny. Darkness covers the whole land. What's happening? Peter tells us in the New Testament that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds, you have been healed. Ladies and gentlemen, as Christ was suspended in the darkness, you need to know that he became our sin bearer and he received the judgment that you and I should have received. God poured out his wrath against your sin and my sin onto his son. He became a curse. For cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus, not sensing the Father's presence for the first time in all eternity, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father turns. He abandons his son. Why? Why did the father forsake the son? Here's why. So you and I would never have to be forsaken ever. Why was Jesus judged? He was judged so you and I would never have to be judged for our sins. And if that doesn't motivate you to begin to live for him, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to say. Listen, listen to the love. This is what's called, theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. Right here, right now, this is the gospel. He was judged so you would never have to be judged for your sins. We'll be judged for our works at the judgment seat of Christ, but ladies and gentlemen, we never have to worry about going to the great white throne judgment and being judged for our sins and cast into the lake of fire because of what Jesus did. That's good news. So we're gonna read the last three verses, but please stay with me to the end, okay? And Jesus uttered a loud cry. John tells us, he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
And so as Jesus breathed his last, the veil in the temple was torn in two, look, from top to bottom. If you knew the Bible, man, this is important. Under the Old Covenant, in Old Testament days, you had the temple. And when the, high, when the, the priest walked into the holy place, there was a, a table of showbread, an altar of incense, and a lampstand in the holy place, and a big veil or a big curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Does anybody remember what object was behind the veil? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Old Covenant. Now listen, the lid is called the mercy seat. And above that lid, under the Old Covenant, Old Testament days, was the presence of God. And so nobody ever was allowed to walk behind the curtain to see that. Listen, if you would like, I'm gonna you know, go have my devotions with the Lord today and walk past that curtain, you're dead under the old covenant. God is holy. Something we don't preach enough. God's holy. He hates sin. He doesn't hate sinners, he hates sin. Okay, and so only one person was allowed in past the veil to see that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. But you know what? He's not allowed to go in there unless he's got some blood. Everybody say blood. So under the old covenant, he had to go out and kill a bull and drain his blood into a bucket for his own sins. You see, somebody had to pay for the high priest's sin. That poor bull had to pay for it. Then he'd go over to a goat, two goats. One he set free, I'll explain all that later. But he, he kills the, the, uh, the goat, and that's for Israel's sins. Somebody's gotta pay for Israel's sins. The poor goat's gotta pay for their sins. He takes the blood of the animals, and then and only then, and I'm sure he's shaken, he goes beyond the veil, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, he sprinkles the blood of the animals on the mercy seat. The mercy seat, that term mercy seat, um, comes from a word that means to cover and to appease. So everybody say cover. cover. Everybody say appease. Why did the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle animal blood on the mercy seat? Here's why. To cover the sins of the people and to appease the wrath of God. And he had to do it every year. Over and over and over again. And so under the old covenant, animals were sacrificed to provide a temporary covering for our sins. And thank God that one day the Lord said, I'm done with the old covenant. It's time to establish the new covenant. And he sent his son to seek and to save those who were lost. And the son became the perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sins. And as he breathed his last, the father reached out from heaven and ripped that veil in half, exposing the way directly into the presence of God. And so you and I, if we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, guess what? We can have our devotions in the Holy of Holies. Guess what? We can have fellowship with the living God. Listen, we don't get judgment, we get grace. We don't get wrath, 
We get love. Why? Because we're so good and we worked our way to heaven? No. If anybody goes into that place, they drop down dead. We only come by the blood of Jesus. It's him and him alone. Have you been washed in the blood? Have you been washed in the blood? What I'm saying right now is the only way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, everybody say no one, comes to the Father but by me. It's Jesus and Jesus only. Have you come in through the blood? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you looked at him as your only way to heaven? Have you realized you're a sinner in need of salvation? If you haven't come, you gotta come. You need to come to the Lord. And so maybe you're here today and you have no idea if you died where you go. You need to come to Jesus. He'll take care of you, he'll protect you, he'll cleanse you. He'll give you eternal life, but then he'll give you abundant life in this life. Nothing's better. You'll still have problems and troubles and trials, but he'll be with you in those problems and troubles and trials. He's a great savior. If you need to come to Jesus, come to Jesus. You say, come? Yeah, I'm saying get up and come down here to Jesus. Right here, right now. If you need the Lord, just get up. Who cares what the crowd thinks? Just stand up and come to Jesus. You know you, know you need him. You know you need him. Come to the Lord. Listen, you may be here today and, and you, you, you accepted Christ a long time ago, but you're not living for him. I don't know what else to say and what else to do except to say that he allowed his back to be opened and his blood to pour so that you could be forgiven. And so why don't you recommit your life and begin to live for the Lord? And so maybe you need to come, come back to Jesus in repentance and faith. And so I'm just gonna wait, I'm not gonna prolong this invitation, but whoever you are, you know you need to come. Just get out of your seat, ask people, please excuse me and come down to the front and I'm just gonna wait here for just a moment to see if anybody uh, responds. And so if you need Jesus, just come on. If you need Jesus, just come on. Maybe it would help, maybe it would help if everybody stood up so that people could get out of their rows and come forward. But everybody just stand up, just say, excuse me, I need Jesus, I'm coming forward. Just come on forward if you need Jesus today. Come on forward. Let's really give it up. This takes a lot of courage for these people to come forward. Amen. Praise God. He endured the wrath of God so we would not have to endure the wrath of God. Anyone else wanna come forward? It's the last call. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. And so we're gonna go ahead and, uh, and be seated. And one more time, really encourage these people for their courage today. You can be seated. And so here's how we're gonna end the service. We're gonna end the service um, through a prayer of commitment. Now, please, please hear me, church family. A prayer won't save you. Okay, we understand that, right? We're saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're coming to Jesus in faith. I admire you for your courage and I thank you. But it's, it's, it's your repentance and faith. You're turning from your sin. You're turning to Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord. And Jesus says, if you'll acknowledge me before men and women, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. And so I thank God for you guys. And so we will pray as a mean to express our faith, but it's the faith in your heart in Jesus Christ. And so let's bow our heads and go to him now. And you guys just say this from your heart to his heart. And if you could say it out loud, and church family, we're gonna say it out loud to encourage them, okay? And so say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I know I deserve death. Thanks for dying for me. Thanks for paying for my sins. I believe that you died for me and rose again the third day. I thank you for loving me. Right now, I open my heart. I ask you to come in. Be my savior, my only way, and the Lord of my life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So what we just did is we expressed the faith through, through a prayer. And it's the faith, it's the, the Holy Spirit coming inside that, that, that saves us and forgives us. If you're trusting in Christ alone, on the basis of God's word, you're a child of God. You're a son and daughter of God. And now that is what motivates us to live for him and to walk with him. And so that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I'm gonna ask the pastors to come forward and the elders and the prayer partners to come forward right now, wherever you are. And I'm gonna ask you guys to give these people some hugs and encourage them. And I'm gonna ask Pastor Will to come up and close out the service. I love you guys. And um, we'll see you next weekend.